Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Thanks, sponsors, Topps, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Here's the dueling questions, uh, second time around with Grant Sandground. Really enjoyed it. Hope you do, too. And here it is. Grant, you've done this before. We've worked together a lot, but in the sense of the podcast you were on more than a year ago, and we did some dueling questions. So this is the questions that are the tougher ones that you held back for the second round. So welcome to the show and hit me with some good dueling questions. You go first. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. I appreciate the time. All right. The first question I have for you, in your opinion, what's the most impactful trading card release of the last 20 years and why did it have such an impact? Oh, boy. Told you I was going to give you hard ones. Yeah. Oh, the last 20 years, I can't say Panini Prism, can I? Sure you can. It's an open question. It's, that's a wrong answer. <laughs> but if you, if you say Panini Prism, why do you think it was the most impactful? They've just taken and expanded the concept and the idea of parallels. I think they took it to another level of rainbow kind of stuff. And I think that's a thing in the hobby. It wasn't more than 20 years ago. There were parallels and tough parallels, but not easy parallels, tough parallels, and impossible parallels. Yeah, that's an interesting point there. I would also say that the growth of the popularity of parallels that we've seen in the past two to three years has um, really been healthy in that it takes some pressure off the delivery of autographs, which is a finite resource because athletes can only assign so many cards. And despite the ups and downs and the wild fluctuations of something being super hot in this industry or super cold in this industry, there's a lot more people collecting cards now than there was three years ago. Yet there's probably not going to be that many more autographs that an athlete can realistically sit down and sign or will realistically sit down and sign. So those parallel cards, I think, do serve a functional purpose for any company but to take a little pressure off of delivering autographs at a, a certain seating ratio of a guarantee of autographs per box. Before I leave that and finishing my answer, it's more than 20 years ago, but if you said 30 years, I could have said Upper Deck's introduction of autograph cards in packs and game used in packs, because I think that was Upper Deck's innovation that's just gone on to great success. And then yeah. Topps probably the finest in chromium kind of thing that they did almost 30 years ago now. Yeah, uh, a couple others that come to me, one that does fall within the 20-year paradigm. So let's say from 2002 forward that I think is to be easily as influential or more so than the, the Prism and, and no detriment to that brand. It's a great brand. It would be Exquisite Collection in 0304 right. when we introduced right. it with the LeBron rookie. Exactly. That, was to me almost as important as 89 Upper Deck in that it reset standards for what super premium could be. Yeah. And even more recently when the LeBron rookie sold for, I think 1.8 million about a year ago, that rechanged the paradigms for what modern era cards could sell. What moderns could even go for. Yeah. But even then at the day, 19 years ago, it was met with confusion in the sense that can the hobby really handle that expensive of a pack? Mm. Yet we should have bought them all up and stashed them away. But yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's true. But again, Upper Deck caught the perfect storm with one of the great athletes of all time. And I got to say, Upper Deck has really been able to pick winners <laughs> for, for endorsees. You want to roll there with Michael. If, if you don't know who the GOAT is, look at who Upper Deck has on retainer. And it's probably one of those guys. Okay. Yeah, I, think, I think LeBron and Tiger would also fit pretty well with it. <laughs> okay. Question for you. What's a silver lining for Upper Deck 
for COVID? Because I think we're coming to the end of that. You've been there. You guys are in California for the most part. What is a silver lining? I know cards have gone up. But in the manufacturer vein, in, in the strategies that you have, in the optimism you have for the category, just what's a silver lining for Upper Deck with respect to COVID? I would say the one you touched upon, uh, the silver lining that really didn't just benefit Upper Deck, it benefited everyone in the industry, almost like a rising raises all ships, is that a heck of a lot of people got involved in collecting trading cards throughout the pandemic because they were stuck at home, getting checks from the government, pulling their cards out of the garage or the closet they hadn't looked at in 20 years remembered, oh my gosh, this was so much fun when I was younger. I'm going to do this. That helped everybody. That helped this entire industry. And I think every manufacturer was probably quite a bit nervous at the onset of March of 2020 when the pandemic really kind of came down like a thousand pound anvil on everybody. We didn't know what to expect, let alone uh, a huge influx in collectors coming back to the industry and also new collectors that could be anywhere from 15 to 25 to 30 years old getting involved in the industry. So that helped every other silver linings. And it's a real small one. (laughs) I think some of the the detriments way (laughs) outweigh the benefits of this one is that I think for a while, consumers had a good understanding. They gave us a lot of patience knowing that the supply chain was a night and it affected again, not just us, it affected our competitors, Panini and Dops, but everyone was really late, but it did. I think collectors gave us a really fair shake of being patient. And I understand that the patience is wearing out now. And it, it's funny because the, the faucet is finally starting to, to flow for us now as we're starting to get a lot more releases out to market. Good answer. Okay. Uh, your turn. Question for me. All right. What's your take on the influx of investment-oriented collectors and podcasts that have entered the hobby in the past two to three years? When you have this abundance of choices of voices in the hobby. When I started doing the podcasting before, when I was checking out podcasts, I could listen to all the podcasts and I could say, hey, I like this one better than this one. And some of them came out monthly, some of them came out weekly. I don't think many of them came out daily. And I really enjoyed it. And then you look up a couple of years later and there's more than you can, you just have to, it'd be a full-time job just trying to check out all the content that's out there. So it requires the collector, whether the new collector or the veteran collector, if you want to know what's going on, you've got to make some choices. And I don't have anything wrong with people choosing the most entertaining podcast because that that sounds fun. But if there's not some content that's going to better you or help you to understand what is a complicated hobby, some people like to read a book about history and some people like to go to a superhero movie. It's different enjoyment for different people. It is, but what I'm touching upon is the shift that we see that may be a little exaggerated if we just read, look, listen to podcasts and, and read message boards from the sheer enjoyment of collecting something for the sake of collecting it to the almost Wall Street aspect of hedge fund analysis of trading cards. What, what's your take on what, that? What I would say is back in the day when you and I were working together, I felt like it was 80-20. It was 80% people were collectors. Really, and they had an eye on the value too. I'm not denying that. But 20% maybe were just in it purely for the money. And I'm hoping that hasn't flipped now. But there's a lot more emphasis on the value of things and opening up a pack and not worrying about what you get other than what's the best thing you could get. And so I'm hoping it's not 80% of the people interested in the financial aspects and only 20% that are really more pure collectors. Yeah. And, so and, and what that's I what get. I'm, 
And podcasts can be the same way and in the content and the social media. They're tracking what people care about and they care about the big cards. What something is worth is not a problem. It's just that if that's the primary or exclusive focus, I think this needs to be still a long tail hobby that you really appreciate the cards that no cards are worthless, but some cards are worth less and some cards are worth more. You know what my thought on it is? And I think some of the terms are, oh, the, all the flippers. Somebody will just get into a card, flip it, move on. And I think there is a lot of those folks came in over the past two to three years with a lot of money. And I think what they collect is the thrill of the chase and then the thrill of being in the spotlight and owning a hot card that everybody desires. That makes you feel like you're just that much shinier and better today than you were yesterday because you got this card in your hand. That's, I think, what they literally collect. And once that shine goes off and once Zion Williamson's out for a full year, you're going to move on because that doesn't give you that good feeling that you want to go chase. So you go chase the next hot thing. I think it's even more complicated than that. Is it? I think now there's bragging rights, not just of what you have in your collection, but what you used to have. <laughs> you have the bragging rights. I used to have that, but I sold it. In other words, I flipped it. And then you can show somebody your digital portfolio of cards you used to have. It's your own kind of form of registry. This is, I used to have this, but I sold it. I flipped it. I traded it up for something else. And so I agree. It's the chase. It's the movement. And that makes it dynamic and exciting. So I don't want to lose that part. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a well-heeled collector jumping in all board on whatever's hot now and moving on from whatever's not hot. That's almost what they collect is whatever's hot at the moment. I know the quick flippers to me are part of the problem. I bought it and I want to sell it the next day. So to me, somebody that flips too fast, it's their prerogative, but that's different for me. And also somebody that flips everything. When I bought a collection, yeah, I flipped some stuff to get my money back, but I didn't flip everything because I wanted to keep some of the stuff that I really liked because I was a collector at heart, but I got my money back by flipping the stuff that I didn't want. And I don't think that's what people do now. They get it. And they're going to flip their best card, not the stuff that they don't want, because they don't want anything. If that's really their mindset, I don't care about anything. It's just the dollar signs. And my goal is to help uh, influence these guys or help them see that this is a fabulous hobby for digging deep and the complexities work for us. If If it was too simple, it wouldn't be fun for a long time. And one of the more fun ways of, quote unquote, investing in cards is picking a player you like, building a portfolio of their cards. To me, what happened last night, which was one of the most glorious sporting events I've seen in the last decade with the Mavericks trouncing the Phoenix Suns in Game (laughs) 7, Luka Magic. For those holding uh, a portfolio of high-end Luka Doncic cards, what a fun time to be involved because I'm sure he's had some dramatic ebbs and flows over the past two years where you said, oh my gosh, I'm out thousands of dollars. But if they were playing the long game, maybe this gives them that other, that thrill, that rush that what's he going to do? Is he win a championship? It could be. But if you're holding Devin Booker, who was an MVP candidate that didn't, and Chris Paul, they, they didn't have their best games. But it's almost like they go back on the shelf. It doesn't make sense to market them right now because they're yeah, not. Worst time in the time. It, it, exactly. it is the worst thing to do is to sell their cards. Right? Sell on a, that's not on a dip. That's on a downbeat because those are great players. And oh, for sure. Potential Hall of Famer. Chris, what, 10 days ago, Chris Paul had one of the greatest postseason games. <laughs> Unbelievable. And now he's on the floor. And now they're talking about how old he is 10 days right. later. He turned 37, right? I know. And he just fell off. People. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, my turn. With respect to grading back uh, 20 plus years ago when you were there and you really helped instrumentally getting BGS launched and getting on its feet. But somehow 
the initial hires, when you and Dan and I guess Mark was there, Wayne was there, but I don't know how much hand you had in the hiring because somehow when the that first wave of graders were hired in that first year, many of them are still there. I'm just wondering, was that just luck? Because th- these weren't guys that had a lot of experience grading. We were creating something and really trying to educate them in a new way of looking at grading for, in a more systematic way, thanks to you. So, yeah, so, yeah. so how were these p- guys handpicked? And it was all guys in those days. Um, was Mark Anderson involved with that? Was Mark Harwell? Were you or Dan? It was many a year ago. And date myself, that was dating back to the late 1990s that we were starting to do that. I was not centrally involved in the hiring. I'm sure I did some interviews and all that kind of stuff, but I think Mark Harwell had a big hand in it. Maybe Dan and Mark Anderson. I remember from my input from helping to really get Beckett grading off the ground from an idea into a product. I felt like I was stuck in a room with one of my dearest friends, Dave Schneider, who was hired to basically take my brain and all the thoughts I had of how to build an algorithm for weighting flaws in cards and and all that kind of stuff and put it into a usable function with software. I remember I worked with him for six months solid on how to get that grading algorithm out of my head and into a functional business. Okay, but that's my point. Then these guys who were hired, at least five of them are still there from 23 years ago. They had to come into that system. It wasn't just you got a grade. You have to grade according to this. Uh, I think it was trickier. It was more detailed than, oh, well, than what I think yeah. our competitors were doing. So they had to have that mindset. So I'm just wondering if you had any approval on that because they couldn't just say, hey, this is a nine. It's a nine. Slab it up as a no, nine. No, you're right. And I remember- so they, um, We had a certain kind of person that had to be able to follow that recipe. Yeah, and those standards for sure. And I remember- fastidiously marking up on type cards, full sets of type cards, like an entire 76 top set. I must've spent two months perfectly marking up every flaw on those cards in sleeves, writing on the sleeves. So you could use them as a, a grading tool to teach other people. I remember Wayne Grove, who was you know notoriously a tough grader. Oh my gosh. He was grading like 62 tops vending, like uncirculated vending. He'd give like a six. And I'm like, Dude, you're brutal. This is like, obviously Dan Hitt had a wealth of knowledge on how to handle a lot of the vintage stuff. And we had long discussions about how to handle all the modern stuff. And really as Beckett grading really caught on, it became known as the more modern grading company and PSA and STC were more of the vintage grading companies at that time. That's how Beckett originally really caught steam. 